Hello and welcome to the MT podcast, where we discuss the operational issues taking place across the market. For access to hundreds of exclusive interviews with industry leaders, head over to our website, manufacturingtoday.com, or subscribe to the latest issue of the magazine. From the team here at Manufacturing Today, we are thrilled to launch the pilot episode of the series in which we share the conversations we've had with industry leaders from around the world. This month, we had the pleasure of speaking with three highly knowledgeable individuals who are incredibly passionate about the work they're doing. You'll hear from Gat Caperton, the president of Gat Creek, whose career inspiration started in his high school woodwork classes. Following that, our discussion with Eugene Cook highlights how the dry ice manufacturing sector can become an integral solution to solving the problem of excess carbon dioxide emissions. But first, we kickstart the episode with the president of Glowforge, Dan Shapiro. Dan's passion for 3D laser printing capabilities has set him and the team at Glowforge on a journey to making manufacturing tools accessible for everyone. In our discussion, we learn about Dan's mission to reignite the human desire to learn and build, which, from his observations, is a skill that is slowly eroding. Uh, when we founded the company in uh, in 2014, 3D printing was uh, was seeing a renaissance, but it was kind of uh, you know ugly plastic stuff made slowly. And while 3D printing has really matured and come into its own as an industrial technology, uh, lasers as a subtractive technology were mired in the muck because in 2014, the, uh, the lasers were really expensive, really difficult to use, hard to maintain. Uh, the tool chains and software were, uh, were prehistoric. And I wound up, um, I, I, I'd uh, previously created a board game with my kids that became a, a success on Kickstarter. And in the course of doing that, had discovered CNC laser cutter engraver technology and wound up with one of them installed in my garage, imported it directly from a factory in China, took me weeks to set up. But I, I learned how incredibly powerful it was for three key reasons. First, because with laser technology, you can work across a host of different materials, whereas with additive, you're typically really limited. Second, because it's really fast to create. A typical print on a Glowforge uh, takes seven minutes and, you know, uh, they run from one minute to an hour typically to run a print. And that's just an order of magnitude faster than additive fabrication. So it's very quick to print. And with our technology, it's really easy to create those designs because you can easily create them using 2D tools that are very easily accessible. And that's anything from on the high end, you can use CAD software and you can turn out precise drawings, but you can also draw with um, things like Adobe Illustrator. We have folks who create things like quick sketches with uh, PowerPoint and use PowerPoint as their design tool. You can even draw with a pen. You can take a drawing, literally a drawing, and turn that into a quick fixture, a quick design, something that you can go from start to finish. So uh, you can actually come up with an idea you can create the design, you can print the design, have that all take five minutes, and then go back and iterate again and again. And over the course of an hour, have a dozen iterations on a product idea. That's just not possible with any other fabrication technology. And it makes it so powerful and so fast to, uh, to create things. So bringing that technology to the desktop, just like you know, so many years ago, we moved computing from data centers to desktops, making that a personal technology is what Glowforge is all about. 
And when it comes to the manufacturing capabilities, could you tell me a bit more about your infrastructure and essentially how you bring these printers together? Yeah, we've been working with Flex since the beginning as our um, as our contract manufacturer. They've been a great partner, and it's been really exciting to see how this product can help create itself. So I'll tell you the first time this happened, um, I was uh, I was on the line and uh, was talking to learning about the assembly process and was talking to somebody about the camera placement. And they were doing a, uh, there was a step where they were checking to be sure the camera had been placed properly and they had to measure and find where it was. And I asked why they didn't have a template that they could just drop over. And if the template fit, then it would pass. And if it didn't, then it would fail. And they said, yeah, actually, we've just requested to have one. It's going to be about a week for them to finish the drawings. And then we're going to send it off to be machined. And it'll take another two weeks because there's the wait time. And they explained the process. And I, I said, can I just make you one? <laughs> And so I took my laptop and we went over to one of the Glowforge printers on the line, one of the gold samples. And I spent about five minutes drawing up the template and put in a sheet of material and hit print. And everybody around came over and was watching because nobody had ever really seen this like from end to end on the line before. And I took the template out and I brought it over and I messed it up. It didn't fit. And that's fine. Cause you know what? I went back and five minutes later, I had the one that worked and that power, the ability to go from an idea to a mistake, <laughs> to a solution. And to do that in minutes instead of weeks is transformative. Okay. And so we actually uh, use the, the, uh, the Glowforge printers on the line to accelerate um, the, the process of production to reduce quality defects, to help better organize the line. Um, we actually have 30 different uh, Glowforge fixtures, more than 30 different Glowforge fixtures on the line that were created on a Glowforge that help with the production process. I also have a note that you are expanding into the education and corporate sectors. What does that look like? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Education is something near and dear to my heart. I, I mentioned that my previous project, I um, started... Uh, 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 my first startup was doing cloud services for uh, camera phones back in the pre-iPhone days. Um, I, I had a company that did um, product search, which Google acquired, worked at Google for a while. And then I created this board game with my kids called Robot Turtles, teaches programming principles to kids as young as preschool. And, um, and that was something I just did out of sheer joy. My now 13-year-old twins, who were four at the time, were learning to play board games. And I thought, why not make a board game about programming? And so taking those fundamentals and boiling them down into just something really delightful as a game was, was this really fun and exciting experience. And it was in the course of doing that and watching them go into school and so on that I started to reflect on my own experience and how foundational it was to be exposed to meaningful technology and empowering technology at an early age. There's something very unusual about my experience and the experience of um, uh, of many of the folks who are who are going to hear these words, which is, well, we've learned how to make things, and despite the fact that we are Homo sapiens, we are a species defined by using tools. Most people don't know how to make things. It is in many ways an art that has been lost. And one of the greatest joys that I have is when I get to take that gift I've been given, the ability to make things, and pay that forward. 
And so being able to do that with our company, to be able to take the ability to create, put that in a school, and then see uh, hundreds, see thousands of kids learn what that's about, that is the potential to be transformational. I will never forget, shortly after I got that laser uh, in the garage, uh, we watched a cartoon. I think it was The Hobbit, uh, the, the 1970s cartoon version of The Hobbit. And my son drew, uh, drew a sword. And he said, daddy, can we make the sword on the laser? And so we did. And we, he got to print himself a real sword out of plywood, which by the way, terrible idea to give a then kindergarten kid a wooden sword. <laughs> Still got stuff in the dents in the drywall in the garage, <laughs> but it changed the way the kids think about the world. My daughter sat me down and said, daddy, why won't you print us an iPad on the laser? And I thought in my head, oh my gosh, her first question is, can we make it? And then her second question is, can we buy it? That's what I want for every kid. For that matter, that's what I want for every person. That the ability to make things, it is a part of our birthright. And that's something that everybody should have access to. So bringing these products into education is really profound. And now there's, uh, I think we're approaching 5,000 schools that have um, uh, that have Glowforge uh, printers available to their to their kids uh, that are you know in K through twelve. We also have grads grad programs and universities using them and the like, and those numbers just continue to grow. Uh, it, it works really well because it's so quick. You can actually have a classroom with 25, 30 kids and have everybody get to print something in one class, which you can never do with additive technology. And it's easy enough. The kindergartners can go and draw something and then the 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 Glowforge itself will scan it and then go engrave and cut that into a piece of material. So it's simple enough the kindergartner can do it, but powerful enough that it's being used to design advanced technologies in, in graduate school programs. Stunning. And I think kind of taking that forward, I'd like to talk about the people side of the company. What sort of company culture do you as the leader work to create within the business? You know, uh, Early on, we talked about how we wanted to hire the kind of amazing folks who could kind of write their own ticket. Um, the folks we hire often are coming to us from the top name um, uh, tech companies. You know, they worked at Apple, they worked at Google, they worked at Facebook, whatever else, and places that you know can can write a check for a talent that they want. And we said, how do we make sure that those people want to come work for us and that we can bring in the folks who are really going to create the kind of culture we want? So we created what we call our cultural cornerstones, and of course, I you know printed them out on the Glowforge. Uh, it is it's really simple. It's hire diverse and amazing people, take care of each other, delight our present future customers and build value for ourselves and our company, all in support of a world where anyone can print anything. And so those four things, well, and the fifth one in the middle, uh, a world where anyone can print anything, are pretty simple. And they define the way that we think about hard problems. When there's problems that like, when I get stuck, when I have a hard problem, it's always because those cornerstones are intention. And that's the way they should be. So um, we'll have a challenge where we look at, um, for example, earlier this year, we, uh, we decided to increase the price of our products. And that was difficult to do. It brought two of our cornerstones into tension. Uh, we wanted to uh, delight our present and future customers, and we want to build a healthy business. And so it took a lot of conversation, a lot of work to say, you know what, the actual cost to build our product has changed over the course of the, the, the four years that we've been selling it. 
And we actually need to change the price to reflect that. But that was a hard conversation because it put our values into tension. And that's what I appreciate. I want values that actually tell us what's challenging about what we do and, and help us highlight what's difficult about the decisions we make. And so that's the approach we've taken. And we've, we've been really fortunate. We've managed to bring in really tremendous folks from many different backgrounds, um, hired a diverse and uh, an amazing team. I mean, you know, that's what it says. And that's the way it's turned out to be uh, of very much the best folks I've ever gotten to work with. And I've, I've had the experience of, you know, working at Google, working at Microsoft in the late nineties and, you know, working with some really profound talents and there's nobody I would trade for the, the team I get to work with every day at Glowforge. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't also add in and we're hiring. <laughs> my final question, where would you like to see Glowforge in five years time? What does that plan look like? So it goes to one of the first questions that I asked my co-founder. So my co-founder, Mark, um, when I met him, I had this laser in my garage and I'd been experimenting with it. I thought it was truly amazing. And I say I met him. I actually met him five years before um, a friend had connected us. He'd since had an, uh, uh, founded a company, sold the company, um, and a huge uh, nine-digit sale of his company, and was temporarily retired. I didn't know what he was doing. We sat down for lunch. I explained what uh, I explained this idea that I had of taking laser technology and making it simple, fast, work on the desktop, easy to use. And he just stared at me for a minute, which is very typical of Mark, uh, <laughs> quietly, uh, to the point of almost uncomfortable. And he said, I, I've actually spent the last year building a combination CNC milling machine, 3D printer, plasma torch, and laser cutter in my garage. Uh, and there was just this moment of silence between the two of us. And I was like, when you say building, do you mean assembling from a kit? And he said, no. So we started having these conversations about what this could look like if this technology was really widely available, if it was easy to use, if it was, if it was available on the desktop and so on. And then we started talking about what kind of company we wanted to build. And I said, you know, I love my, my DeWalt tools. I love my, my, uh, my, my Makita. I don't want to be a tool company. That's not the thing I want to spend. Like I'm ready to spend like th for this to be my life's work, that's not what I want to do. And as we talked about it, we talked about how there's something really profound that happens when people have the tools of creation. Because when you have advanced fabrication abilities, the way you think about products and distribution changes. So not too long ago, if you wanted music, you had to drive to the store and buy a piece of plastic. If you wanted a book, you had to drive to the store and buy a chunk of wood pulp. But the distribution of these things has transformed from physical to digital. You can now get those sent to you as bits, and then you can bring them to life right where you sit in exactly the way you want, the right font and size for the book, the right volume, the right, um, uh, the right speakers for your music. And we are working to build the company that does that for physical objects that lets us distribute physical objects digitally instead of shipping them around the world. So this is my wild eyed founder dream that we are not building the next version of a cutting machine. We're building the first version of the star Trek replicator.
a science fiction world where you can dream something up, you can describe something, you can send something, and that thing can come to life where it's needed, when it's needed, and for the purpose that it's needed immediately. So that's that's the journey we're on. And building the software and hardware and experience to pull those together, it's incredibly exciting. It's exciting whether you are a kindergartner who's creating a sword to go knock holes in your parents' drywall. It's exciting <laughs> on the other side, if you are a professional who creates things for a living and you suddenly get the, the ability to push a button and have that idea pop into life is one of the most empowering technologies from the kindergarten to the factory floor. And it is my great joy to be a part of it. It's wonderful to hear Dan speak with such encouragement about his team and the opportunities they're creating for 3D laser printing. Another leader who brings just as much enthusiasm to his work is Gat Caperton at Gat Creek, a business that prides itself on locally sourced furniture manufacturing. We jump into conversation with Gat about how he came to this sector. And as you'll hear from him, his story has had exceptional results. Yeah, people often ask me, uh, you know, why did you get in woodworking? And the, the only good answer is, uh, you know, wood furniture manufacturing, the only good answer is, you know, lack of sense. Um, but uh, there's a couple, there's two, there's two assumptions coming out when I introduce myself that I, I have a wood furniture factory. Uh, first assumption is, ah, he must have been born in the business. The second is, is, uh, is he must have been really good in shop. Uh, neither are true. My dad uh, sold insurance when I was a kid. And, uh, and I got a B in shop. I was really a C student. Since you're since you're a since you're a writer, you get to you get to hear the 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 real story behind my B in shop. So uh, uh, I went to fancy uh, actually, you know, in, in New England prep school had a lot of English traditions, and we had a phenomenal wood shop up there. And uh, you know, of course, I took shop. I was a boy. I had to take shop, and I was fine at it, but not great. I had a couple of buddies that were really good at it that made like secretary desk and really cool phenomenal woodworkers um and uh when i was getting married and i just got married that same year i'm at my buddy's wedding i'm in a hotel in pennsylvania philadelphia and the, and the shop teacher goes hey again how you doing <laughs> and i look up and say oh mr brown i didn't expect to see you here i didn't expect you to re remember me i wouldn't want your good students he goes oh yeah i know but uh i get a student like you every couple years and uh, my wife's like, huh, what kind of kid is he? And uh, he says, well, you're working your project. You're doing this and that. And then uh, the last two weeks of school came around. He didn't show up. I said, oh, Mr. Brown, I'm sure I was in the library. He said, uh, I don't know where you were, but you weren't doing your project. I said, geez, I guess I owe you an apology. I legitimately felt bad. I could call out. And he says, uh, don't worry about it. You don't owe me an apology. Well, if you left school, I took all your stuff. I fixed it up. I put it together. I have a piece of your furniture in my house today. So, oh, that's fantastic. Can't believe that. That's great. And uh, we all kind of start feeling good. He says, well, get, so what are you doing these days? I said, ah, it's great that you ask. I'm actually manufacturing furniture. And the guy turns white like a ghost had walked in. What? And he said, duh, you know, like wood furniture. He goes, really? I said, yeah. He goes, what kind of thing? I said, antique reproductions, blah, blah, blah. The more I talked, the worse he looked. And you could just see his head spinning. And he's like, I gave this idiot a B. And now he's in a vocation he can only fail at. Um, finally, he looks at me and says, get, 
are you building the bit? Are you are you building the furniture? I said, no, sir. I'm just running the company. He goes, oh, thank God. You'll do just fine then. And the color came back to his face and he went out and I said, let me buy a beer. He said, I need one. Thank you. And we walked off and then had more stories. Uh, so I'm a, I'm an accidental furniture maker. My uh, real background is uh, I uh, after undergraduate, I uh, worked for a diversified manufacturing company, got a, a, a degree at night, a, master, a master's degree, a business degree at night, and started looking around for a small furniture company that, uh, not, I started looking around for a small manufacturing company, had no interest in furniture in those days. And, uh, you know, 20, this is 26 years ago now, uh, 26 years ago, manufacturing was still cool. It was before China took in and ruined it for many, many people. And uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I was looking for a manufacturing company. I grew up, my dad had a small business. I thought that was cool. I thought manufacturing was cool. It was before China. So it was cool in those days. Um, and, uh, I found a small furniture factory in Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. And it really, uh, they made you know, beautiful furniture and the, and the factory was a disaster, uh, which was perfect because uh, the furniture and the product was really cool. Uh, and, you know, no one could afford to buy a good, uh, a good factory. You know, you, you, you know, so I was a young guy, you can only divide, you can only buy things that are unprofitable disasters, you know, hopefully before they, you know, implode. So that was, uh, that was the play. Um uh, back to the business, which, you know, was awesome about this business was it was making, uh, it was manufacturing and to this day still does, you know, manufactures beautiful wood product from sustainably locally harvested woods. You know, it's, we've got a community of, of artisans, you know, 165 now that are building really beautiful furniture. I mean, we're makers and we're making product from, uh, you know, from natural, really sustainable resources. We, uh, you know, we've we've made our we've made our uh, we're making our living, and uh, we live our lives in in the woods. And it's a real honor and treat to be able to have both contribute to that, and do so on a long term basis, uh, where we have really kind of cool jobs for people. We make neat products for folks, and it's kind of a business that you know we we you know we as we've evolved, we you know we care equally in what we build and how we build it, and uh, so that makes it a fun place to go to work and. You know, you have 165 people every day, 165 people, someone has a bad day every day. It's not like walking to Disney World, uh, but it is pretty awesome still. And uh, um, so, yeah, so that's how I, that's the background on how I got into it. From our research, I noted that um, being locally sourced is really important to the business. Could you tell me a bit more about that? How, where the sourcing comes from? What does that look like? Uh, first, the, the backstory. So, you know, I was a kid growing up in West Virginia. We played in the woods all the time. It's like the ultimate playground. My brother and I would go out and run around the woods. And my mom eventually got an air horn to call us home for dinner. We heard the air horn. We had like 15 minutes to run home to get inside before so we could eat dinner with my mom. Um, so, uh, of course, I had the classic dream about a year after I bought the business, which is the... Uh, Oh, geez, I think it's the Dr. Seuss story about cutting down all the trees. The, the, <laughs> the Lorax. Uh, Lorax. So I had, a, you know, so I had the Lorax dream and I was like, oh, my God, I hope I'm not the freaking guys that are cutting down all the trees where I used to play. You know, so you, know, you wake up, you don't feel good that to, after that. I'm like, holy crap. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I got involved there. That was 24 years, 25 years ago. I got involved in sustainability there. I worked with the, the, uh, 
the National Conservation uh, National Conservation Fund, uh, which is a big big organization uh, in the West Virginia chapter, and and you know to learn learn about the forest and and its sustainability and and to help protect chunks of it. And um, you know, I, I now now today I'm on the board of the American. Appalachian Hardwood Manufacturers Association, the AHMI. And uh, so I've been really, really involved in that. I helped found the Sustainable Furnishings Council um, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, to help promote sustainability in the operation. And uh, the wood store, back to the wood store. The wood store is awesome because uh, an Appalachian forest is which when we're near the geo center of the Appalachian forest where our factory is, is the most successful factory in the world, both in, it's not just maintaining fauna and and wildlife it is uh it's uh growing and it's actually a growing forest um today there's more trees in appalachian forest and tree mass in appalachian forest than there was 30 60 100 years ago you have to go back to to 1807 1907 to have a time at time and place before they actually had more trees in the Appalachian forest than they do today. Uh, trees are actually growing 2.4 times faster than they're dying or being being harvested uh, in these forests. So it's a phenomenal story. We're right in the middle of it. A big part of sustainability is, is in energy usage, especially when you're burning oil to move big diesel trucks and uh, containers. And we don't, we do very little of it. So all of our wood, almost all our wood comes within a 250 mile radius of our facility. It's uh, locally harvested, sustainably harvested. Um, and what I tell my suppliers all the time and other folks who haven't get the chance, um, you know, the best furniture comes from the best wood. And luckily, we've got the best wood growing all around us. And in a way that we're not the Lorax or the, the, the antithesis of the Lorax. <laughs> On that note, could you tell me a bit more about the furniture and the manufacturing facilities? What kinds of technology are involved? What does that look like? I believe there's a true renaissance in manufacturing happening these days, a digital renaissance, uh, in that the technology that CNC uh, and like digital technology and the digital platforms that are available to manufacturers today are phenomenal. And uh, they're they're mostly affordable, and they're fundamentally changing how uh, things are made and where things are made. Um, obviously, there's a new revolution with added manufacturing that's coming along. Um, that's a different story than ours, but uh, it's a lot of the same technology as a digital printer, except for it's subtractive that we're using. So we're you know, we're able to you know create parts and forms digitally. Uh, figure out how to machine them. And then we have one giant machine, a big five axis CNC machine that can uh, do all the part work. In the old days, a, a wood shop like ours had a, had a dozen machines to make a part. You would go to a drill, you take it, you know, you take it to a drill, you take it to a table saw, you take it to a joint, you take it to a shaper, you put it to a sander, blah, blah, blah. And a part would be ready to make. And in the old days, they would do 50 of them at a time because they got sick of walking between machines. Uh, today we we're set up we're lead manufacturer and we're set up to build one piece at a time and you literally put uh we put a panel that we create a solid wood panel on a cnc uh table and that cnc the five axis cnc it picks up a tool like a person would and, and gets five axis so it up down left right diagonally it'll machine the entire piece drill holes where holes need drilled you know shape the size needs to be it, a part comes out uh, so it's pretty awesome. So we've got a uh, uh, the first uh, our, our manufacturing breaks down into kind of four parts plus some shipping, but the first part is creating these panels, which we get raw lumber in that's kiln dried, and uh, we you know we we match boards and figure out links and 
build, you know, panels and sticks, the building blocks of furniture. Uh, and then we have, you know, basically five, four or five really cool CNC machines that do all their machining. So we've got a highly automated machining. Then it moves into the building process where we've got literally work pitches. We don't run a, a linear operation. We don't run an assembly line. Each of our builders is uh, specializes in uh, specializing a part uh, and put them in a line like you would traditionally see in kind of tailor manufacturing uh, where someone is a drawer person and someone is a is a uh, top person someone's a this person and then someone at the end of the line fixes all things that went wrong as it rolled down the line uh so instead of specializing in components our people specialize in uh in actual pieces so each of our builders has their own workbench they specialize in you know 10 to 25 pieces some you know some people build anything uh some people just build a few people but typically 10 to 10 to 25 pieces uh that they that they built uh, the parts of that come to them essentially kitted. They come off the CNC and put on a on a on a tray, if you will, uh, and they'll take it and take the parts and build the entire piece at their workbench. When they get done building it, they'll sign it, date it, and then push it in the finishing room. And uh, that's the white wood construction. Return, pick up the next piece and build that. They'll build the pin of the piece. You know, one to five pieces a day. A furniture builder will build. It's everyone is signed and dated by that builder, and it moves in our finishing room. Uh, we have a little more automation in the finishing room because of spraying, so we get to move so many things around. So things do move around a little bit on a line in there, but it's uh, uh, the important part. When we do the color work is actually offline, so people have the time, much like a builder does, to do the right things in the right ways. And then we put a top coat on. That's a relatively automated process. Not similar like the CNCs, where you really want consistency. You're working, at, you're trying to get five mils of material and stuff. So we have some robotics that do that very well. Then we uh, package things. You know, we uh, you know, person packages every piece. They do an inspection and and figure out how to package it carefully for the builder, and then rolls on the trucks and eventually into homes. What can we expect from Gat Creek? Sure, we're we're we've, we're in the process of expanding our factory. So you know, like our customers that have had to wait a half a year for things like furniture from us, we had to wait a year to get the steel to build our factory. So we finally got the steel and uh, all the permitting and all other stuff is in place, and we've built about half of what we want to build onto our factory. Um, and uh, by the end of the year, we'll have built all of it. Uh, and this this expansion will add about forty thousand square feet, and will allow us to double what our capacities are. So uh, we're trying to be really nice to people and uh, really humble and apologetic that we you know we, we deliver on time, but we just tell people, great, love the order, we'll send it to you in January, um, and we send it to them on time, and and that's all great. So we've been really humble trying to work our way. You know, we 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 we're at we're at capacity, so there's only really kind of small incremental improvements we can do on a day to day basis. Uh, we make sure we're on time, build beautiful product, try to be really nice to folks. Um, and then next year will be the year of catching up. Lovely. And we wish the Gat Creek team all the best as they push to complete those expansions. What I particularly enjoyed about this interview was Gat's determination to make furniture from responsibly sourced lumber from the Appalachian forests. And I think his drive for sustainability ties in beautifully with our final segment. This month, we spoke with Eugene Cook, who serves as Cold Jets president. In this discussion, we learned from Eugene about how dry ice manufacturing supports greenhouse gas reductions by revolutionizing water usage. Over to Eugene. Again, carbon dioxide is a naturally existing element. Uh, it it uh, is a generator 
of life on this planet. And it is being used in a wide array of applications um, for uh, either cold chain delivery of, of sensitive products, pharma and food primarily. Uh, and in our case, it's also being used as a medium for cleaning. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you two examples on how I think carbon dioxide in the application uh, for Coljet uh, relate to sustainability uh, and the, um, the elimination of, of uh, waste uh, across uh, the planet and also health and human safety. Um, <clears throat> we have a project with a large manufacturing company headquartered in Cincinnati, uh, looking across the totality of their manufacturing facilities to eliminate the use of water. Water is one of the most precious resources in 2022. Um, <clears throat> and the use of water for cleaning process equipment may seem like a fairly uh, low-key um, objective, uh, but the amount of water that's being used unnecessarily uh, that could be redeployed in other areas, a uh, major initiative for this and many other companies. And the, <clears throat> the use of carbon dioxide for cleaning process equipment in lieu of water uh, will help this and other companies achieve that uh, water sustainability uh, objective that they have established. A second example of how carbon dioxide fits and, and um, uh, contributes to sustainability. Um, <clears throat> we work with a company uh, by the name of Dry Scotland uh, that are in the uh, carbon capture business. And they are using biomethane um, <clears throat> generation, uh, anaerobic digestion to generate carbon dioxide from waste that is then being used in the transportation of food and pharma products across the UK. Um, so in essence, uh, generating carbon dioxide from waste that then is being captured, purified, liquefied, and um, transformed into solid CO2 for essential activities. Um, and whether it's the transportation of vaccines from point of manufacture to point of use, or it is the transportation of foodstuffs from point of distribution uh, to your home, uh, dry ice is a very, very sustainable medium uh, because it eliminates the need for diesel generated refrigeration trucks, uh, which as I'm sure you appreciate in the city of London and others uh, are slowly being banned. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, <clears throat> it is the only medium that can maintain the temperature required for Pfizer's vaccine to go from point of distribution to point of use. Um, so it's an essential element uh, in society in 2022. Um, and those are just two specific examples of how I think Coljet is working uh, along the, the path of sustainability. Wonderful. And I think that, that nicely leads on to um, the next couple of questions, which I'm going to um, sort of couple together, because we know that, you know, despite everything that went on in the last couple of years, you've still experienced 15% uh, year on year growth. 
And our, it's our understanding that um, you are working with um, um, companies to support the delivery of Pfizer's vaccines, as you mentioned. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about this and then more broad about the, the Pfizer vaccines and then more broadly about the ways in which the company was affected by the pandemic and how you overcame those challenges? <clears throat> we literally were very fortunate in having Pfizer find Coljet in plus minus June of 2020 um, with obviously um, a very compelling need uh, that was still uh, under development and working with Pfizer at its primary manufacturing facility just outside of Brussels and then working with Pfizer at its primary manufacturing facility uh, in Kalamazoo, Michigan in the United States. Uh, and then working with Pfizer at a primary point of distribution just uh, south of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Pleasant Prairie, uh, and then working with Pfizer's business partners such as uh, uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific um, and other companies in other parts of the world. Um, <clears throat> we went from really no activity uh, in the pharmaceutical space um, to quite a bit of activity, uh, given the strategy that Pfizer used with messenger RNA as the primary protein uh, in this vaccine and the requirement to keep that uh, very, very cold, ultra low temperature. Um, <clears throat> Dry ice uh, was determined to be the, the perfect uh, transport medium and the need <clears throat> and the volume so large that these very, very large dry ice manufacturing systems went into these points of manufacture and points of distribution um, so that they could go from an ultra low temperature freezer into a shipping container and yet maintain the cold chain uh, again, through the point of inoculation. Um, so we've really <clears throat> worked very hard to be a great supplier to Pfizer and its business partners around the world uh, in what is probably the most compelling development uh, in the 21st century, uh, which is the development of those COVID vaccines. And how important would you say relationships within your supply chain are and what ways do you manage these relationships to ensure that your network is able to pivot to any market and supply challenges? Yeah, those are those are great and very complex uh, questions and therefore uh, beget, hopefully, um, very complex answers. Um, <clears throat> so we... We have two primary product lines, uh, environmental cleaning and surface preparation, uh, and then drives manufacturing systems. Um, those are split between Denmark in terms of drives manufacturing, and then Poland and Cincinnati for uh, environmental cleaning and surface preparation. Um, <clears throat> and there are a lot of proprietary sub-assemblies. So, Working with a supply base in Scandinavia and continental Europe, working with a supply base in the United States, um, we have uh, really developed relationships at local, regional, national, and then multinational levels with our suppliers. 
um, so that we have the abilities to be redundant in our sourcing. Um, <clears throat> we're not overly reliant on a supply base in Eastern uh, Asia. Uh, we have activities in China, but we are primarily selling finished goods uh, in China rather than sourcing components from China, uh, which is a little bit of a uh, uh, an anomaly uh, to a lot of other companies. Um, so a European-centric and an America-centric supply base and again, slightly better than the numbers you have. We've, we've actually got an 18% CAGR uh, over the last three-year period. Um, we're on pace to um, surpass 100 million US dollar and US dollar equivalents in revenues in 2022. Um, <clears throat> and that's only done uh, by having a very healthy, uh, by having a very involved relationship with, again, local, regional, national, and multinational suppliers. Uh, and we have uh, procurement teams and procurement specialists in each of uh, Bramming, Oberniki, and Cincinnati. Uh, and they work both together. And then they work, obviously, externally with those key supply uh, partners uh, that we have around the world. And, um, you know, I think one of the, another <clears throat> topic is you know, sort of the culture uh, that Coljet has as a company. And we are um, more collegial, um, more collaborative, um, less formal um, as an entity than, than perhaps others. And I think we translate that um, uh, culture to our relationships with our suppliers. Um, we are not looking for last dollar negotiations uh, with our suppliers. Uh, we are looking for business relationships that enable us to be responsive to our customer base, but respectful of the business objectives of those suppliers. Um, so availability of the right material at the right time uh, take precedent and priority rather than cost per unit um, <clears throat> and payment terms by way of specific example in our relationship with suppliers. And we've talked about what's sort of going on now, but on, on a longer term scale, where would you like to see the company in about five years time? Yeah, I, th I think um, we, we, again, we're going to remain very dedicated, um, very driven, very obsessed by the application of reclaimed carbon dioxide uh, for cleaning and cold chain logistics. But probably the bundling of products and services and the extensions uh, that we engage in, you know, by way of, of specific, um, <clears throat> instead of providing um, a dry ice production machine uh, to ButcherBox, who's a great customer in the United States, um, we will extend uh, the scope of services that we provide to assist ButcherBox in assuring that 100% 
of its shipment of frozen proteins from its point of distribution to your home or your apartment um, <clears throat> are on time and at proper temperature and are traceable um, because <clears throat> the last thing you want when you open your uh, cardboard container with hopefully recycled cardboard um, is to have proteins that are now at uh, 30 degrees C, which make them inedible, unsafe. And the last thing, butcher box, is for those to arrive and you to be underwhelmed and return uh, or not want to use their product and service again. So our abilities to work with those clients, not only in uh, how do you produce dry ice, how much dry ice to get those proteins to your apartment, to your flat? What, what size of dry ice do you use? What materials do you pack in and around uh, the dry ice? And what containers do you use? Typically, they're one-use containers uh, so that we're not creating uh, a waste footprint that didn't pre-exist. That's where I see Coaljet extending its involvement with its client base and adding that level of expertise in the totality of the use of dry ice as a transport cooling medium uh, by way of an ex sort of a specific um, five-year picture. And that's all from this episode. We'd like to extend a massive thank you to Dan, Gat, and Eugene for sharing their motivation as to how manufacturing can go beyond the operation. From us at Manufacturing Today, we hope you enjoyed this episode. To stay up to date with key developments happening across the industry, why not subscribe to our newsletter? You can find out more at www.manufacturingtoday.com. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Fine Light Media. We'd like to extend a special thanks to our producers, Daniel Baxi, Alex Chisery, and Danielle Champ, our sound engineer, Paul Gillings, Amy Jilks, our guest booking manager, and our editor, Libby Hammond, and assistant editor, Mary Float. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Fine Light Media and its team.